Okay, so this probably is going to be kind of short, but um, it's kind of practical. It's not really all that illuminating or a deep thought. It's just more of step-by-step things that we have to really consider and try to live out the word. I think so often that we, we take it and we make it abstract and not something that we really can hold on to and say this is how the scripture is supposed to be played out. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do. Hopefully that happens. But I was cleaning up and uh, found an old book that I had printed. And it was so on topic of what was on my mind. Because what I had been thinking about um, was the cross and the cross path. The path that he took to get to the cross. Because that path didn't start, you know, on the walk. But it started well before that happened. It's, you know, the whole thing in Gethsemane. And I have a strong belief that until we truly have a Gethsemane experience, each individually, we never really begin to walk the walk that Christ walked. That we have to have that battle of the wheels. And so often, I think, in our our Christ walk, we thought that us accepting Christ was the culmination of us really saying, okay, I'm with God. But I think, and I could be very wrong, but I think that when we get to the place that we can battle wheels and I get bold enough to try to change God's mind and I'm sitting here telling him, I think it could be another way and you really going to do this and why would you do that? That is when we start, we step into a true faith and a true belief that God is not just abstract, but that God is something that I can touch and taste and talk to and battle with. And that's, ha- that's what happened in Gethsemane. He sat there, he cried. It was the first shedding of blood. Well before cross, the cross happened. He cried tears. So this is in an intense talk that he had with, with his father. This was no plaything. This was no, oh, can you please change your mind? Okay, well, your will be done. And that's how we use that scripture. We use, we use it as, okay, he said, well, if it you know, be your will, just let the cup pass. Oh, well, okay. You, it's your will that I have to go through. And we act like he was that, it was that simple. He cried blood. Now that's some intensity that's going on in his body. Remember, he's a man. He is just at the point of breaking and begging the father, you need to change your mind. Now, I may be stepping into a little no-no place, which I have been known to do on time. But I really think at that moment, he didn't really trust God. Father, are you sure this is what we're going to do? Now, I didn't kind of done everything you asked. We didn't convert it to souls. We didn't got the message out. We got some good followers with us. Why we got to go through all this? You sure? When do you get that in your experience with God? When do you get to the point where you say, God, mm, the way things have been going, I think you need to change your mind. And not believe he's going to leave you when you ask the question. 
But are you willing to fight and cry your tears of blood and have your battle of the wheels and then accept that he won't change his mind and not charge him? Just a little thought there. Now, the second point that I want to make is that you know that I'm a push for honesty. That this whole gatherings, everything that we do is a push for us to be honest, mm -hmm. completely and fully honest with God, which then creates us to be completely and fully honest with ourselves. Fully. Until we have a true battle of wills, drop tears of blood, can we begin the cross path? Now, what was the path of the cross? If we were to sum that up, it would be one word, which is suffering. The very thing we don't want to do. There was not one pleasant thing about the cross. You can't pull nothing out and say, well, that couldn't have been that bad. Quit crying. No, we, we can't do that about the cross. Everything about it was awful. Pure suffering. He was betrayed before then. Left alone while he was battling with Christ. Asked them disciples, could you just stay up and pray with me? And the sorry souls went to sleep. Came back and said, can you just, can you, you serious? You can't stay awake. I'm sitting, do you see the blood dropping off my face and you're sitting there sleeping? Gee. Beaten, mocked, humiliated, put on parade for everybody to see. His supposed weakness. Then nailed to the cross, stabbed in the side. And then the ultimate forsaken by his own father. And the Amplified Version defines forsaken as deserted and left helpless and abandoned. The Christ man, he was helpless and abandoned. A feeling he had never felt. Because at all this time, he knew he was the God. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't shaky about who he was. At that moment, he became helpless. Lost everything. Most of us can relate to the feeling of being maybe abandoned and rejected. Maybe disappointed by your father. That's a horrible feeling. Abandonment is like one of the worst. It is. It is. Because it puts a hole in your soul. Mm -hmm. It's so important for us to always go back to the school of Calvary. Because every time we study it, love is always in the lesson plan. Christ endured the cross path for love's sake and love's sake alone. When we enter this school of Calvary, we must open our eyes and ears. We must visualize the path and hear the screams. Once we study this with all senses open and begging for knowledge, we must fall on our faces in reverence unto the love that has been personified. As one student of Calvary heard after he was in devotion, he heard God say, I love you more passionately than you love your sin. I love you more passionately than you love your sin. 
John Giles goes on to say, and I can completely agree, I cannot describe the tremendous impact which that sentence makes upon my life. I know I have sinned. I know how I have clung to my sins. I know how I have yearned after my sin. I know what illicit pleasures I have found in my sin. I know how I have pursued it at any cost. And now in the school of Calvary, my master takes up this, my so strenuous and overwhelming passion for sin and contrasts it despairingly with his passion for me. He says, I love you more than you have loved your sin. That's pretty deep. And that takes honesty because we have been taught to act like we hate sin. But we really love sin, especially my sin. The sins that I, you know, we all got just about one or two that we love. And we cling to them. We want them. We don't want to let them go. They've become our friends. Our, they're, they're, they're our lovers. But he loves me more than I love my sin. Is that deep? Jeez. Now that thought has to go through every cell of your body. That's something you have to just sit and just bite on for a little while. I love you more than you love your sin. Can you be honest enough to admit how much you love your sin? Then you will see how much more God loves you. That what needs to be done to transform us. This will make you fall in love with God. Falsity never leads us to love. Truth leads us to love. Our walk with Christ cannot truly begin until we fall in love. We must begin, as Ephesians 3 and 18 states, to feel and to understand, as all God's children should, how long and how wide and how deep and how high his love really is. And to experience this love for ourselves, though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know or understand it. And so at last you will be filled up with God himself. Until this occurs, we will continue to fail to partake in the fullness of the life of Christ. We are full of church. We are full of tradition. We are full of rules and regulations, but we are not full of God. And the reason why we're not full of God is because we have not yet tried to comprehend his love. Until that can be comprehended, we go nowhere. We just come to church week in, week out, try to keep our skirts long and our mouth shut. But we, go, we don't get anywhere. We just get stuck. Love has to be what we begin to know ourselves as. Our description of ourself has to be that I am loved by God. Because until I can say I am loved by God, 
I can never say I love God. If we look at Philippians 3 and 10, we see Paul speaking of his desire to know Christ. And I've heard this read so many times. But now I get it. He dispels all his pedigrees and throws them into the trash. In, a fifthly, in excuse me, Philippians 3 and 10, he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The Amplified Version, it gives it nice clarity. It says, for my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly. To know him. And that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection. And that I may so share his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit into the likeness even to his death. In hopes that if possible, I may obtain to the spiritual and moral resurrection out from among the dead even while in the body. We love the power of the resurrection. Oh, we can talk about some power. We jump and skip and move by the power. But we want to skip the fellowship of the suffering. Don't want to go into that. I think we often read this as our suffering instead of his suffering. We think because we suffer that we're in fellowship with his suffering. We all can talk about our mess. We've all suffered, some more than others. But that's not what he's talking about. We must enter into his suffering to find fellowship. We cannot ask to know Christ and not be willing to suffer. The cross was suffering. Without the cross, we wouldn't have everlasting life. How dare we only want the blessings and none of the sufferings? We say we want to become like Christ. In order to become deeply and intimately acquainted with him, we must be willing to enter into a relationship, into a relationship with his suffering. Not to just, okay, I know he suffered, but I need to get tied to the suffering. And I thought of a song, this old song, that says, come and die in the master's calling, come and die. You can feast at Jesus' table all the time. Him who fed the multitudes turned the water into wine. To the hungry caught now, come and dine. We want to sit down at the table with the master. We want to dine. We want to sip on the cup of provisions of peace. We want to sip on the joy. We want to take a few spoons of glory and wealth. Chow down on health and strength. Finish up with a nice cup of grace and mercy and have a little decadent dessert of forgiveness. But sitting next to our smorgasbord of deliciousness is the cup of suffering. And we frequently forget or ignore it. 
but this cup is close to the master's hand. We may hear the Lord ask, are you willing to drink of the cup that I drink of? You are willing to drink of the cup of forgiveness and grace, but will you drink of the cup that I drink of? And maybe Paul is saying, I have tasted and seen how gracious he is. I have drunk the cup of his salvation, but I thirst for a deeper communion. Not only a sweet drink, but I am willing to taste the dark and bitter cup, the cup which contains blood. Can you say you're willing to drink that cup? In Philippians 3, 8 and 10, he says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have put all aside, counting it worthless than nothing, in order that I can have Christ and become one with him, no longer counting on being saved by being good enough or by obeying God's laws, but by trusting Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith counting on Christ alone. We think that us being able to give the line of all the sins we missed and we didn't do means how saved we are. Paul says, that's just done away with. I'm not even believing that no more. I'm believing that Christ is going to save me, not my works. Because, see, we still hung up on work saving us. He says, I don't believe that no more. I'm through with that. I'm now going to trust in faith that God's going to take care of me. I want to know him. I am not discounting all the other amenities on the table. But our intimacies with the Lord can best be estimated by our knowledge of the contents of that bitter cup. The quality of our fellowship with the Lord is best revealed not by our capacity for joy, but by our capacity for suffering. We often test our communion with the Lord by the measure of our composure. If our life is calm and passive, and the wrinkles are absent from our faces, and we can sing blessed and highly favored, then we assume our intimacy with the Lord must be very deep and true. But composure is a virtue very mis misunderstood. And it's usually just a disguise for apathy and laziness. Peace is often used to label undignified and worldly ease and has no fellowship with the Lord. We do not reveal our high spiritual kinship by our ability to remain unruffled, but by our capacity to be stirred. It is when life is messed up to its depths that we know the Lord. It is when deep calleth to deep that we have the conditions of vital communion. So it is not by our pleasures, but by our pains that we may discover our likeness to Jesus. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink of? That is the cup we forget. And yet is in the cup of suffering that we attain the finest and rarest spiritual communion think of it this way in the same way we measure our relationships with each other 
the more we go through with each other, the deeper we find a bond. If you're willing to step in the fire with me, I say we have something a little deeper than those that just stay on the outside. It's the same way with Christ. We need to see him in a different light when we step into his suffering. We then tell him we got something deeper than everybody else has. We want to hear songs of praise and blessings. We give glory to God when we hear the reply, we are too blessed to be stressed. We think if you drink the cup of spiritual peace, it's a sure witness we can find you sitting at the table with Jesus. But how far has our fellowship really advanced? How rarely do we ask, have you become a partaker in his suffering? Have you lifted the cup to your lips? And if so, when and how and where did you taste the bitter blood? If we are honest, we have kept our eyes on the other parts of the table and have hope with fingers crossed that he does not pass us the cup of suffering. No one is interested in raising the glass, giving a few words and sipping on bitterness. We all stand in Gethsemane and beg the Father to choose a different cup. We are all hesitant to say, not my will, but thy will be done. There are three cups of suffering that I will examine. These are all cups that our Christ drank from, and we should be honored and humbled to do the same. We have the cup of sin, the cup of others' pain, and the cup of service to others. Firstly, the cup of sin. Christ always drank a bitter cup when he came into the presence of sin. The prevailing sin hurt him. It crucified his spirit long before it crucified his flesh. Imagine the sinless Jesus gazing upon the unholy pleasures and shames of sin and weeping. Weeping because it hurt his being. Weeping because he craves for us to be better than what we are. Weeping because he loves us more than we love our sin. When will we enter into the fellowship of that suffering? When will we taste that cup? Or have we been so fascinated by the glittering decoration as to be oblivious to the corruption? When do we become so disgusted with all sins? When do we imagine Jesus drinking a cup of bitterness and blood when we partake in our sins and weak our eyes at the sins of others? We must share in the shame that Christ feels and drink that bitter drink with him. When we share his burning shame and disgust, we then enter into fellowship of his suffering. Sin is what made him have to endure the cross. But let's be honest. We are interested in sin. We lift our eyes in delighted inquisitiveness. Sin attracts us. It does not blister us. It interests us. It does not burn us. 
we can gaze upon it in curious observation and it does not create an emotional convulsion. We can see it and laugh. We can see it and sleep. We have not drunk the cup. We are not as intimate as we think. We must ask for forgiveness. Jesus looks upon sin and weeps. We laugh. We pat it and we take it to bed. Sin should make all true Christians deeper connected to Christ. Sin should push us to a stronger fellowship, but does it? So we will suffer with our suffering Lord. But all too frequently in our lives, the shame is missing and the blush is absent. And there is no suffering, no pain. And because there is no pain at sin, there is no haste to remove it. We are slow-footed because we are slow to burn. We refuse to suffer with Christ. We just want to sip on the cup of forgiveness and close our hearts and eyes to the cup of suffering. We need to pray for God to help us feel, see, and taste the bitterness of sin. To see the cup of blood that Christ continually must drink because we refuse to release our sins. We need to have spiritual seizures every time we come in contact with sin. And a part of me wants to be able to stay blind to those effects. I don't want to see what it really does to my Savior because a part of me wants to hold on to my sin. So we must then ask God to help us and be honest enough to say the truth. Help me to hate sin as much as you do so that we can become more intimate. Just thought I should pause and think about that. Because we don't hate it. It doesn't disgust us. We don't think about what it's doing to Christ every time we sin. And then if I get to the point that I see it as he sees it, and I feel it as he feels it, what does my life then consist of? Because a great part of our life consists of sin. We take pleasure in it. And not just my own sin, but the sin of others. So I don't want to really see what it does to him. I don't want to sip that cup. I have to know that every time you just see it, you weep. Not even that you touch it, but you just see it. Will we drink that cup? Will I enter into that suffering to have fellowship with my Christ? Or do I just want the power to jump over sin. But I don't want to burn with him. The second cup. Is the cup of others pain. If we look at Christ. We always notice that he suffered. With the suffering of others. He made others sorrow his own. And drank deeply of everyone's bitter cup. Have you entered into the fellowship of those suffering? If not, is it because you figure you have enough of your own? And that may be the very reason why you have so many. 
join someone in sorrow and pain and watch God step in the fire with both of you and neither of you will be burned. We can drink the cup of sympathetic suffering in silence. It does not demand the clumsiness of speech. Don't think you always got to have something profound to say to touch somebody. Sometimes you can just shut up and be there. Sometimes all you have to do is hold someone's hand, say nothing, and let's just cry together. We must allow pain to touch pain and grief to touch grief. I remember when my my uh, husband's uncle passed and I was sitting there with his aunt. And we sat there probably for a good 30 minutes or so in the dark, her laying on the bed. I never said one word. Not one word. I just touched her, and we just cried together. I thought of, like, should I be saying something? But nothing needed to be said. And sometimes we, we miss the opportunity to touch somebody. We are all born with this gift. Every person. Well, there's a few bad seeds, but most people. A little child can instinctively discern sorrow and offer sympathy. You look at any little, everybody that has a kid, your kid sees you cry when they're young. They know. But as we grow older, we trifle with this precious inheritance. We waste our substance. We pervert and prostitute our emotional wealth. We are moved, but we do not move. I feel you. I see you, but I don't do nothing about it because I don't know what to say. And I don't know if I'm going to be intrusive. Do you want me to know? Maybe it's a secret. Maybe I should just shut up. So what do I do? I have all this stuff running in my head, and I just sit there and look at you, and then we be like, why are they staring at me? And it may be not that they talking about you, but it just be, i just a little paralyzed. I don't even know what to give you. So I give you nothing. We have a gracious impulse, but we give it no way to impact. One writer says, the waters of unfulfilled emotions congeal into frost, and the very ministers of intended service become friends of a relentless alienation. And so we leave our childhood behind. Our gift becomes our curse. We cease to be able to enter into the suffering of Christ, and the Savior suffers alone. He's done all this for us, and we just sit there and let him cry alone. Because he weeps with those who weep. He feels the pain of others. And we say, God, I'm not getting all into that with folks. Lord, you know how much I got on my plate? What I could cry about? Why I'm going to tend to them? Yet Christ, on the cross, knowing he about to go do the, the thing, goes and forgives other folks. There's a lesson in that. When you are in deep anguish, when you are in pain, when you don't know the way out, bless somebody else. Don't think that that's an excuse for you not to touch somebody else's life. You don't get a pass. Christ didn't get one. 
I can't say, but you know what, foot, let me tell you about my thing. I don't want to hear about your thing right now. Your job is then to touch somebody else. And then you trust and believe God's going to send somebody to come and touch you. Not in a fake and phony way now, but truly touch somebody else. And that should make us sad to know that Christ is just suffering all by himself now. He did the cross by himself for us. And now he's just doing it all over again by himself. He done done all this for us. And we like going and cry by yourself. Bless me. I want the power of the resurrection. Let me speak in tongues. You know, he's. I think he didn't got tired of us doing all this little speaking in tongues stuff. Because I think some of us are faking. Because we know how to make it up. We didn't done it long enough. And we know when we supposed to do it. It used to take it to I think sometimes people be making it up to fill a mm-mm, you know, because that's what we're supposed to do. But we're not really doing the Christ thing right. We don't want no suffering. And not suffering because you stumped your toe or suffering because you didn't pay your bills or, you know, that other stuff. But suffering the way he suffered. His suffering, that's what counts. Not the stuff we've created. But it says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sometimes we miss our comfort because we refuse to mourn. We're trying to be so tough, so put together. No one wants to see you. You don't want nobody to see you cry. And then in church, it's like we created if we mourn and we in sin. We ain't grateful for salvation. Dude, I'm hurting. I'm grateful, but I need to be comforted, so I need to cry. We just didn't mess the whole thing up. Making up stuff, the stuff the Lord never said. Jump for joy. I'm not jumping right now. How about I sit and cry? But we, 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 we lose our comfort. I'm saying, Lord, why haven't you comforted me? Then I'm mad at Jesus. Saying you didn't mess it up. I don't feel no peace. Well, he's saying, because you ain't never gave it to me. When will you mourn? So that I can comfort you. And we would be in right standing, according to the Bible, if we weep with those who weep. But what do we do? We tell folks, come on, honey, because just one night is just all you get. And we barely get that. We just get an hour. Yeah, you don't let them see you cry now. We don't want folks to know that we can be weak. No, we just lying. No, we then we start lying. And that's supposed to be with Jesus. Somehow we didn't mess this thing up. So if he says to weep with those who weep, that means we're supposed to come in and touch each other and just sit there and cry together. That's salvation. Because that's what he does. He don't be trying to rush people. He don't tell you you can't cry no more. He says, you got to cry, I'm going to cry with you. How long is it going to take you? I'm here. So we've had some big bruises. 
We've lost some big things. You think he don't know that? And then we got folks saying, well, how long? How long are you going to be sad? How do you question how long? You know why we say that? Because we don't want to be there. I want to be there for you in the beginning. I need you to hurry up and get this over with now. Because I got stuff to do. I'm not going to be calling you every day. Now, I didn't call it the first week. That's all you get. You still sad? Yes, I am. It's so offensive because we don't want to touch people. We don't want that cup of suffering. We say, mm, pass that cup. Let's go in and give them joy. Until we can accomplish this task, can we say we have entered into the fellowship of his suffering? We haven't. Because we don't want to connect to nobody. We like alienation. And Jesus was all about connection. All about relationship. All about healing. And we give it to nobody. We not drinking the cup. Lastly, we must drink the cup of service to others. We can enter into the fellowship of our Savior's suffering by surrendering ourselves to the service of others. Our Lord served people to the point of physical weakness and exhaustion, even unto death. Our service too frequently ends where bloodshed begins. Just when we are about to drink the bitter cup, we put it down and sip on a good cup of God understands. He knows I'm weak. He knows I ain't got no more to give. He knows he's a bunch of people out here acting a fool. But Christ asked, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And honestly, most of us are not able. Because we work and we're willing to put a little work in. But once it becomes bitter, we give up. As long as there is no drain, we can persist. When there is a demand for the veins to be open, we retire. And so we miss the best of the feast, and we miss intimacies with Christ again. We keep missing the spiritual kinship, companionship, and infinite compensation of fellowshipping with Christ's suffering. And when we miss this, we can't really say we know Christ. And this is what Paul was saying. He says, I'm counting all that as foolishness. He could line up everything. I did all this. I was perfect. I had this, 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 and that. He said, all that is foolishness that I may know him in the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know who you are because a huge part of who Christ is is his suffering. We want the glitz and the glam and the blessings. But that's saying, that's just like us. We're very offended if people want to be fair weather friends. We like, well, boot you. You ain't even there for me when I need you. But look what we do to Jesus. We just fair weather. Bless me, bless me, bless me. Show me your face. Show me your power. Touch me. 
Come to our service. Make me feel high. And as soon as he says, but step into my suffering. Drink the cup with me. We say, I can't do that. I don't want to know you like that. I just want to know the nice side of you. But I don't want the ugly side of you. And isn't it the desire of all of us to be loved so fully that even our dirt is accepted? I mean, isn't that how we define love? Yet with Christ, it's not the same. We think he's satisfied with our foolishness and our unacceptance of his suffering. It's offensive if you think about it. So how can we say we know God? We can say we know tradition. We can say we know the rules and the regulations, but do you know God? For you cannot say you know God until you step into his suffering. So the new battle cry is sit at the table with Christ. Feast on all the luxuries, but also raise that cup of bitterness and suffering and drink deeply. As we drink, we will enjoy a more rich, sustained, and profound relationship with our Savior. We must get to where we say, oh, that I may know you in the fellowship of your suffering. Oh, that I may taste and see, feel and understand your suffering. Not just read about it. Pass it on by. Let the cross just be something that we tell the story of, but that we have no impact. We've gotten too comfortable with the, the stories of the Bible, and we have made them just stories. Something to read passing by. To say I read for today because I feel guilty if I didn't pick up the book. To say, yeah, I know how to quote that and, and I know where that's found and, and I can quote this and say that and, and I can tell you which scripture you need to hear at this appointed time. But I don't taste it. I don't see it. I cannot feel it and I don't understand it. We have missed what Christ is trying to do for us. Our salvation has become just a little I guess it's a luxury that we hold on to. Something we dangle in the car to say, look at me. I'm better than the rest of you. So we must be careful that we don't sit there and put down all these other Christians. Because we know the oneness. And we can say, I'm blessed. And I know how to speak in tongues. And I know about baptism but I don't know about my God, Christ is suffering. And I'm not willing to enter into the table with him and drink the cups that he keeps drinking. So it's just a way to examine where are we really? And if we are falling short, then we get to the place that we have true repentance and say, God, I'm not where I need to be. And I pray that you drop the desire in me to know you more. That I get to the point where I'm tired of playing games. But that I just want to know you. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes. If that is for me to enter into your suffering. 
if that's for me to keep drinking the cup of sin. Because I think that's one of our biggest ones. That sin thing. We've made that too small. Just a checklist not to do. And we're happy when we can check it off this week and that week. Oh, I didn't do that. I got the victory. But remember, sin is anything that makes you miss the mark. Anything that Jesus is here and you are way down here. Be it our attitude, be it our fear, be it our disappointments. Whatever it is that says I don't trust God fully. Whatever it is to say, and, and you know, we all know the, the, the other stuff. And we be slipping and sliding with that stuff too. But don't think that it's just the list that we can run off. Well, I didn't have sex. Well, good for you. But what else did you do? You're hateful and mean. You're nasty. Don't nobody like you. Jealous. You, we all going to be in the same place. And we need to realize that, that this could happen. And until we, I think we get a jolt to say, dang, I could be going to hell right now. If Christ came back, would I really make it? I think we think because we baptized and we, we know how to speak. And we can shout and run when, when the, the organ's playing, right? That we're like, oh, yeah, I know I'm going to heaven. Let's not be too presumptuous now. Can you really say you know 100% that you just on fire, on the mark with Christ? It makes you not want to scream that, you know, Maranatha. So this just made me, you know, the suffering. Are we really willing to enter into that part with him? We've got to question that and ask him to forgive us because we know we haven't been.